with such a great God who in His mercy has provided us such a great salvation and given us the, the rich bounty of His Word that some dare to reduce to call it the good book. That is not good enough for what God has given us in His pure, tried, and living and holy Word. And I ask you if you would join me this morning in Acts chapter 16 as we after an extended season make our way back to the book of Acts. And I'm going to read this morning verses 1 to 5 in Acts 16 and then we will pray and consider a few things together this morning to honor God. Listen as I read God's word. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decision that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Let's pray. Lord, as always, when we take up your word, we do so with a sense of gravity and a sense of seriousness, because we recognize, God, that it is your holy word, that you have given it to us for a purpose. God, our desire always when we open it is that we might glean those things from it that would help us to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, it is our desire that this would uh, never become just a, a, a Christian ritual or a mere pattern, but it would be a passionate practice of your people to open your word, to hear it preached and spoken and expounded. And God, I pray you would continue to give your people ears to hear, a hunger and thirst for your word. Oh, grant God to those who stand and speak your word uh, a sense of the importance of the privilege and duty that they have. And, oh, God, help us to do so in a way that is faithful, in a way that's pleasing and honoring to you. God, may you be pleased to work in our hearts even today through what we consider. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, as uh, we jump back in, after having been out of Acts for a while, just I'm going to back up a little bit to set the stage for how, how we've gotten to chapter 16. Now, I'm gonna be, it's going to be a very brief summary of which you're welcome to read the whole book of Acts preceding this to kind of lay it out in your minds. But Paul and Barnabas had gone on their first missionary journey, as we call it. 
and they had gone to all kinds of different places uh, teaching and preaching the gospel of Christ. And we see that wonderful statement everywhere they go. They went with the gospel. They went preaching the word. They shared the word of the Lord. And we see this consistent passion. And God was pleased in the process of that, of that ministry and the places they went uh, to establish a number of disciples in various regions as God was working His work of grace, bringing people to salvation and faith. But in the midst of that ministry, we know it was fraught with much hardship. It was as He went into the region of Galatia, from which we get the book of Galatians written to the churches in Galatia, the primary churches in Galatia that we hear spoken of in the book of Acts is that of Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And so these are the... Now, when I say those, for those who are familiar going back to chapter 14, your hand might go to your head and say, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, those were places of great difficulty. It was in Iconium that there was threats against Paul and Barnabas, uh, so they fled on to Lystra. While in Lystra, the, the Jews from over in Iconium, they came and stirred up the people in Lystra against them so that they dragged Paul out and stoned him and left him for dead. And then they went on to Derby, And it, it, it was just a great deal of difficulty. And yet, I think we should never miss this fact. We can look at it from one's perspective and say, so difficult, so hard, so much pain, and so much struggle from the human perspective. But then when you look through that at what God was doing, You see the testimony of Paul and Barnabas as they went back to Antioch, their sending church, and then as they even went uh, 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 through on their way to Jerusalem, they kept testifying of all that God had done in this place and all that God had done in that place. And again, we love that phrasing because it is always God who does it. You know, you could think of today a biography being written by men about Paul and Barnabas and telling about all they did. And it's not that they didn't, but they had a clear sense that in all of their own endeavors, it is God who does. We remember those words from 1 Corinthians, it's he who plants and he who waters isn't anything is nothing but God provides the increase. I mean, it is a wonderful, uh, humbling thing. And also, I think at the end of the day, a strengthening thing. Because they realize, listen, why would we dare go back and do that again? Except in those works, God is working. And what is a little bit Stunning is when you take up 16. Now, of course, at the end of chapter 15, there had been a sharp dispute between Paul and Barnabas. And and Barnabas takes John Mark and they go off uh, to visit some of the churches and encourage them. 
and Paul himself takes Silas, and he goes off, both of them carrying on similar ministries, and it does seem through the course of time that God would break down those differences and restore a sense of unity. But what I, what I want to point out initially here in Acts chapter 16, verse 1, as Paul is now starting out, chooses Cyrus, I'm back in verse 40 of, of the previous chapter, chose Silas and departed, commended by the brothers. He went through Syria and Cilicia, and then it says this in chapter 16, verse 1, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. And you think, what is he doing? The, these were places that were serious struggles. Now, what's interesting to note, it just in terms of an observation, as we go through, we know that when he was in Damascus and caught wind that there was a threat against him, he fled. And there's nothing wrong with that. When he was originally in, in Iconium, he caught wind that there was a threat against them and they fled. But what seems to be happening as time goes by, they're fleeing less. And they're strangely, fearlessly going right into the places that are the danger zone. And you're thinking, wow. Remember, later on, knowing all that the Holy Spirit is telling him through the churches of what awaits him, imprisonment and bondage in Jerusalem, he goes. And, and so I think, find it interesting because oftentimes I think the way that the world may work is we have bad experiences. We are wary of that. We might even tend to say humanly, we learned our lesson about that place, about those people, about those circumstances. Uh, and, and people tend to say, well, I'm not going there again because this is what happened. I'm not doing it. But Paul, surprisingly, by the grace of God, is completely different. And it seems that where men ought to be wary to go, he is more wanting, more desirous of going there. You're thinking, what is going on? And I think it is simply this, and as we see this start of the second missionary journeys, uh, we see that Paul starts with what I would call here uh, simply a life-endangering endeavor. He is absolutely ready to put his life in a place of peril for the sake of the name of Christ. Again, when I, when I say this, we are reminded, and we, we've talked about that even earlier this morning, and even in previous weeks, in Acts 9.16, from the beginning, it was told him, uh, as it was told to Ananias, who would then speak to Paul and deliver the message from God, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, I think that we should never lose sight of that closing phrase there, for the sake of my name. Simply, simply suffering is not commend-worthy. But indeed, we want it to be that as people of God in Christ Jesus, that we would strive to do all that we do for the glory of His name. We would want to bring Him glory. The Scriptures go so far as even to speak of those things that we oft call ordinary 
insignificant or mundane. Whether we eat or drink, we do this all in the name of the Lord. We do this all for the glory of the Lord. Eating and drinking, there is this sense in which whatever I want it to be that whatever I do, I do it for the sake of the name of Christ. I work hard where, where God has given me work to do in my place of employment, not because necessarily my boss deserves it or not because, uh, uh, but I do it because I want to reflect well on my Savior. I, I want, I want I, that nothing I would do to detract from his name. And if people are going to, if I'm faithful in the way that I speak, people are going to be connecting me in their minds with my Savior. Because I speak of Christ. Because he's my heart and life. And so then when my life is, is deficient, my life is compromised, my life is less than, then what happens? then the name of Christ gets shamed among men. And we don't want that. Everything for the sake of the name. That there would be nothing we endeavor to do that is not for the sake of the name. Again, one of the ways that we oft see it that had been left off for so long, for the true believer who understands the Scriptures, all of life is worship. All of life is ministry. It's not compartmentalized into separate segments, separate moments, and separate events. We know that we live in an era where, where, where they have shrunk down often in, in church phrasing worship to be exclusively the singing time. No! No! It ought to be that as we hear the word, we are worshiping. It ought to be that as we're hearing prayers, we are uniting our hearts together in, in one voice, in an amen, in agreement with those prayers, and we're worshiping in our fellowship with one another. It ought to be in our minds, I sing for the sake of His name and glory. We gather together for the sake of His name and His glory. We engage in communication with those of the world for the sake of His name and glory. Now, if that is there, it does affect our conversations with them, doesn't it? It affects how we work. It affects what we do, how we engage as we gather together. Because there, there is a clear sense that, that Paul understood, if you were to look at a spectrum... He understood God and the name of Christ as preeminent and supremely exalted. And so as a result of that, all of worship, all of life, all of service, all of ministry is piling down. And when you get to the, the bottom of things, sort of on his list of values, one of the things at the very base of that is his life. What? which is quite different than the world in which we live in, don't we? Always clinging tenaciously to it. Listen to what Paul says, and I don't ever want us to miss this. Uh, Paul says this in Acts chapter 20, verse 24 and 25. He says, I do not account my life 
of any value nor precious to myself. Now listen, in the providence of God, we might look at him and say, what is wrong with you, Paul? Your life is valuable. The gifting God has given you, the understanding, the apostolic uh, positioning, uh, it is so valuable. And Paul understood to a degree that his ministry and his calling was valuable to the churches. There was a time where he said, I would rather depart and be with the Lord, which is far better, but it is necessary for you that I remain. And so, it, it, it's, so in terms of life to himself, the value is none. But he saw any significance, any weightiness, any value that might be in his life has to be for the name of God in the service of others. That's what it has to be. And he goes on to say this as he diminishes a, a, a sense of self-value in clinging to life. He says what? If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And oh, do I love that phrase. And I, you know, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Isn't that beautiful? Because when you see that phrase, we reminded that a right understanding of the gospel speaks of what? The meritless, worthless, helpless circumstances of man and the need for God to have grace. That he would show his mercy and grace on those who are undeserving and unworthy. You know, what frightens me is that there are presentations of the gospel these days that seem all designed about puffing people up. You know, you're, you're so important, you're so valuable, you know, God kind of needs you. What's he going to do without you? You know, he, 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 what? Is God not complete and glorious and satisfied and blessed in himself? Who are we that we would, we would actually think he needs us? He doesn't need anything anything we've already looked at earlier in Acts. He's made everything. Everything's the work of his hands. He doesn't depend on us. The gospel of his grace. But you see that, that diminishing of it. Because the sense is this. What he does is he's doing everything for Christ. For the one to whom he belongs. He says, I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers and sisters, the gospel of grace, rightly understood, moves God's people to state that very biblical phrase with all the strength and weight that it carries. Christ Jesus made me his own. All glory to him. I was lost, he sought me. I was enslaved and captive, he ransomed and bought me. I was estranged, he reconciled me. He seeks and saves the lost, he saved me. 
not by works that I've done. He saved me. How astounding that something that is, is so foundational and so basic to a right view of God is somewhat marginalized in the full import of it these days, isn't it? Because of the puffing up of men with their sense of worth, the puffing up of men with some faulty sense of somehow goodness in them, somehow ability in them, instead of the recognition is, look, you were dead. I was dead in my trespasses and sin. You know, it, it, it's not that we were responsive. It, it, it's not that we were, we were moving the right way. We were at enmity. We were, at hot, we were hostile. The whole import of the Scriptures lay it out so that we say this, I stand where I stand today, holy by the grace of God. Jesus made me His own. Amen? And so, so with, with that sense in his mind, so Paul, it, it becomes quite easy. So then now everything about my life is not about me anymore. It's not for me. It's obviously for Him. So in any issue, it could be as simple as this. Lord, what would you have me do? Well, I'd have you stay home in your pajamas on Sunday morning while the saints are gathering. Is that likely? You know? Uh, you, you see a brother or sister in need, really struggling? Well, I'm going to pray that someone goes over and helps them out. Is that it? Or do you step in and step over? Because, oh, I'm, I'm ready to suffer loss. I'm ready to diminish a bit uh, so that... Everything has changed. So listen, it is, first of all, we see a life-endangering endeavor uh, is, is pushed forward for Christ. And then secondarily and associated with that, it is pushed forward for Christ's. Okay? It's because I belong to Him, and it's for all who belong to Him. Listen to the, uh, the words again of Scripture. I, I, I do want to draw your attention to this. And, and we get, I get concerned about this, and we want to never lose sight of this. The purposes of God are not, is not merely to get us from, instead of going to hell, we end up in heaven. Some people think, that's the end-all, be-all. If we can just get them to pray the prayer, maybe a little water dip in too. If we can just get them there, then we're done. Is that it? No, and we've oft looked, and, and I remind you again, what did the Great Commission say? What, was it simply to, to get them saved and walk away? No, it's to make disciples of all nation, which is learners, students, followers of all nations, nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then what? And teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded. Some people think the work is done when they repeat after me. Is the, is the work done? I mean, is our, is our children's education done when they can recite their ABCs? I mean, it's ludicrous. 
And, and it's, it's missing the, the full scope of what's going on. And so just even in this, uh, briefly go back with me if you would. Uh, look, look at what it says in chapter 14, verse 22. After they've uh, initially uh, gone on their journey, now they've kind of reached the utter ends of it and they're making their way back. To where they had made many disciples. Verse 22. Listen to what it says they're doing. Strengthening the souls of the disciples. Well, why are you doing that? They already, they're already baptized. They're already professed. They're already in. They're good. <laughs> they, there is a good standing by the grace of God in Christ. But his work is not finished. We love the fact that he who began a good work will bring it to completion. As the scripture says, we are being transformed from degree to degree into the image of his son. God is at work. His word by his spirit is at work in us. They go through strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. I like that because what's their encouragement? It's hard. And in the midst of that encouragement, it may get harder. It's not a wide and easy path. It's a narrow path fraught with many obstacles and, and full of many stumbling blocks. And I will tell you, you may find in the course of your life some of the greatest griefs that you may practically experience, some of the most tragic trials that you will face will come from others who also profess Christ. Sometimes it's like they can hurt us more than the other. Because they're family. In the same way, uh, husbands, wives, children, it hurts more because of, of that, that special love and closeness and expectation. Listen to what it, again, uh, over with me to chapter 15, verse 41. It says, and he went through the churches of Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Down now in chapter 16 that we're reading, verse um, Five, it says, so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. You know what's, what's going on and what Paul and Barnabas and Silas considered important? To continually strengthen the churches. How did they do that? Through the delivering of truth. The proclamation of the unchanging word of God. Now, I want to say something from the other side for us. If they're going through strengthening the churches, do you know what that tells us we're in need of? We're in need of strengthening. Take heed the one who thinks he stand lest he fall. Watch out for the supposed Lone Ranger Christian. 
That's not how it happens. I love the fact that, again, you see this, strengthening the churches, strengthening the souls of the disciples. There is a, there is a camaraderie. There is a community. There is a unity that we have in Christ Jesus that is very important. You know, it, it's, it, it's not, think of it not so much like we oft do with the body. Some people think, well, I can go to the gym by myself. I can build my own gym in my garage and I can exercise and I can achieve strength. Maybe you can with regard to your body. But you cannot with regard to your soul. Because, um, because the lifting and the exercise that your soul is to engage in is, a, is, is oft comprised of much of what the New Testament calls one anothering. Love one another more and more. Show hospitality more and more. Bear with one another. Be compassionate to one another. Encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. How are you doing that in your garage? Of course, today, some people can say, well, I'm doing it by messaging, and I'm doing, yeah, you know, maybe to some degree, but it, it's not quite the same. I tell you what, it, it, um, if someone makes a delicious pie, and I send you a picture of it, or I send you a slice of it. Is there a difference? There is. And, and there is something substantial about God's people coming together and functioning as a body with Christ as the head that we can never take lightly or take for granted. You know, uh, it, it, that, that's one of the things that we'll, we'll take a closer look at in, in the weeks to come on, on Tuesday evenings. Uh, but again, just drawing this out, uh, Paul says this in 2 Timothy 2.10, when they say, for Christ and for Christ, he says, therefore I endure everything. And his list of everything we know was significant, right? All that he bore uh, for the sake of the elect that they may also obtain the salvation and glory. So he endures every. Wait, I thought he did everything for Christ. And now it's saying he does it for the sake of the elect. So which one is it? Wrong question. <laughs> you know, the, the question itself shows you don't understand what's being said. Uh, it is for Christ and Christ's people it is now maybe it is preeminently for christ indeed let him have preeminence in everything but we give him preeminence when we give high priority to his people don't we i mean listen to what it says that's not only there second timothy 2 10 it says that they may obtain salvation in, in Titus 1, he says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So the one says that the elect might be saved. The other says what? 
that the elect might be equipped and instructed to grow in godliness. Both those pieces that we talked about moments ago. And we have that. Paul says, I would gladly, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. A life-endangering endeavor. And I want to remind you of this, and I, and I do from time to time. Ephesians chapter 4 speaks of the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers. And one of the priorities of a pastor and teacher is to, as it says in Ephesians 4 verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So when it, it, let us not say of ourselves, okay, all of life is worship, but for pastors and missionaries, all of life is ministry. For evangelists, all of life is ministry. Brothers and sisters, the saints, that is the believers, that are those that have been declared holy and sanctified by the Spirit unto Christ Jesus. So often I say this, you ought to ask yourself, or maybe you ought to boldly even at times ask one another, Brother, sister, how's your ministry doing? How's your ministry going? To which probably many of our brothers and sisters in Christ would say, uh, I'm not in ministry. What are you talking about? I'm a pediatrician. I'm a, or whatever they may say, I'm not in ministry. You are. And actually, if you say you're not, that might be indicating it is not going so well. You know, the, the, the not holding the level of priority that may be. It should. Paul will go so far as to say even of himself in, in Philippians 2, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. He's ready to be poured out. He's ready to be expended. He's committed to a life-endangering endeavor. Now, secondly, I want to draw our attention to uh, the, the sermon title that you had seen there before was Honoring God. This is the section where we are very first introduced to Timothy, whose proper name is Timotheos, as you well know. And Theos, you might have some idea what is the meaning of that word. Theos means God, and Timo means honor, value, weight. The name Timothy basically means honoring God. I think, what a difficult name to live up to, isn't it? But in the providential mercies and working and grace of God, this little guy lived up to it. And, and, I, and, I, and I want us to, to, to get some sense. So we, the first thing we saw was a life-endangering endeavor by the Apostle Paul. The second thing I want us to, to take note of is a life-engaging example. Now, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to say a few things here, which I'll come back to in a moment. But I want to be careful for just a second, and I want to lay some groundwork. There is a danger in looking too much at men. Okay. We, we live in an age of, of, of hero worship. We live in an age of celebrity Christianity and celebrity Christian preachers and things like that. Uh, men of which, many reach a certain stage of prominence and then fall 
into gross and grievous sins or display, uh, you know, write tremendous books on humility and then are removed from their ministry for acts of authoritarianism and pride. And you're thinking, what is happening here? Such a great book he wrote on humility. Again, to study and know the scriptures is certainly easier to grasp it in the mind than it is at times to flesh it out in our lives. And so truly and surely, Christ is our preeminent example. And we know that. And the scriptures do make that wonderfully clear. Jesus says in John 13, 15, as as he washed the feet in an act of of servitude and tremendous humility of the disciples, he says what? Uh, I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done. In his act of servanthood and, and humility for the benefit and need of others, He demonstrated that. And Christ is, of course, that greatest example who set aside uh, uh, the the glory of His deity in some sense that we can't, uh, though being in the form of God, determined that uh, that was not a thing to be grasped. But He came in the form of man. He humbled Himself. I mean, you think the Lord of the harvest is now in need of physical sustenance. And, and all of those things. Uh, and, and 1 Peter 2 says this in verse 21. Uh, for this, to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. Now, please note this. It is a tragedy when Christ becomes nothing to people except a good example. But... There's also a mistake in fear of those who have, who have minimized Christ to a mere example for us not to recognize the scriptures portray Christ as a preeminent example. So we want to take note of that. I always get fearful at how at times segments of Christian groups can become more spiritual in their minds than the scriptures. For example, at times, and there is a danger, some songs that are written and even some hymns that are written will have a strong emphasis on, on personal experience. You know? And some of them go too far and some can be an extreme. And of course, some groups sing only the me, me, me songs. But be wary of just throwing it all out. Because I can show you a host of me, me, me psalms. Because we are thankful for the wonderful, personal, practical engagement of God in our own lives. All right? So, so we're thankful for the corporate work of God, but we're also thankful for the, for the personal specificity of it. And so, uh, there has to be a caution. And, and again, uh, who's the one who knows the perfect balance of that? Well, God does. We just do the best we can, and let's try to not be too judgy while yet still striving to be discerning so that we can do the best we can. Um, also, I want to draw your attention to, to one other fact, and, and, and this does happen along the way too. 
as I've set forth Christ as the preeminent example, some will go so far. We, we looked in the previous weeks, and I love the fact that the scriptures say Jesus took them, and he went through the prophets, the law, the Psalms, in all the scriptures, how they speak of him. But there's even a danger in misappropriating that statement and thinking that Every single verse is about Jesus. Because not every single verse or every single passage is exclusively about Jesus. Now, we rightly understand it and how it applies to us in Jesus. But for example, I give you this. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, God's Word says... Catch that part. God's word says, now these things, as it accounts the experiences in the wilderness, these things took place as an example for us so that what? So that we might not desire evil as they did. Wait a second. So you're saying that some of those Old Testament passages were designed by God as practical examples on how we are to shun, flee, turn away from evil? Uh, it's not merely that I'm saying that. I just read a verse from God's Word, inspired by the Spirit, that says that passage is designed to what? Urge us to no longer desire evil. Now, can I do so if I'm apart from Christ? No. I mean, so, so uh, but th there is a danger. Some, some will go so far as to say this. Uh, don't tell me what I should do. Tell me what Christ has done. And everybody's like, yeah. Well, listen, what about also tell me what Christ has done Tell me what Christ would have me do. What happened to that? Remember, and I'm going back again to the Great Commission. It says, teaching them to observe. The phrase there, observe or keep. That is the act of not merely knowing, but walking in, obeying. I mean, the scriptures are full of blessed imperatives. Shun this, flee youthful lust, put to death sin, put off the old man. All of the, well, when you read that, just think about Christ. Well, think, think about because of Christ, the grace and power of God is at work in you, making these things possible in degree. But tell me what Christ would have me do. Tell me not only of what he's done, but of what he is now doing in us. And he's doing it through his living word and his spirit living within us and the clear commands that are in there. Okay? So I will never say that we should minimize Christ. And it's a danger when Christ gets, gets a, a second fiddle and, and preaching all becomes moralism dangerous to fall into just moralism and legalism, dangerous to fall into coaching classes 
and preaching just becomes life coaching. But listen, the scriptures and Christ pertains to life. It informs our life. It directs our life. So there are going to be elements of that within there. So please let's not, uh, let, let's understand that. So that's why even further, Christ our preeminent example, but secondarily, again, here Paul is, is uh, being spoken of as the leader in this missionary journey, and Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, which we know well, and it's good to always keep that as a memory one, follow me or be imitators of me as I am of Christ. But listen, in Philippians 3.17, Paul says this, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And I think some of us are ready to rise up and say, Paul, how dare you say to imitate you and to imitate those who are living according to how you lived and taught and you didn't even mention Christ. What's wrong with you, Paul? Well, Paul understands that he does it in imitation of Christ. He says it elsewhere. He understands that in love of Christ, the others are doing it. But if it gets left off from mention a single time, it's going to be okay. Because we understand the context and the scope in which it's written. You know, it, it says this um, in 2 Thessalonians 3, 9. It was, um, it was not because we do not have the right, the fact that we did not receive money from you and the fact that we worked hard, but to give you in ourselves an example that you ought to imitate. So there were some of the practical things that Paul was doing, and in other areas, Paul was practically denying himself. And what was the purpose of that? To be an example to them. Well, where's Christ in that? Well, Christ is in that. But, uh, but uh, just sensing that. Now, come on, come on down also. We see the same thing. Uh, church leaders are told in 1 Peter chapter 5 um, that they are to be examples to the flock. The, the saints in Hebrews 13 are told to remember your leaders who spoke your word to you and consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. Look, it is useful to have examples. It is a good thing to have examples. But listen, you know what is also good? To strive to be exemplary. You know, one thing maybe that, that's good to tell to those who are young, say, think about yourself and what you're getting ready to do. Then imagine showing that video to your children as you're trying to raise them not to do that. <laughs> do you want that? I mean, so seek to, to, well, that would mean I'm denying something in order to be an example to my kids. It's okay to deny yourself in order to be a good example. Now, I want to just jump on to Timothy briefly. And, and, and just going to fly through it. Because again, in all of this, we know that as Paul will speak, he'll say, I worked harder than all the rest and all these things. 
but nevertheless not I, but the grace of God in me. By the grace of God, I am what I am. So the glory still all goes to God, the glory still all goes to Christ, but let us look briefly at Timothy, who is honoring to God. The first thing I want you to be aware of with regard to Timothy is it tells us this in Acts chapter 16, verse 2, that he had a respectable reputation, okay? He was well spoken of by the brothers in Lystra and Iconium. He had a... they. He lived not only secretly, but he, he lived in a way that people could see. He is genuine. He is faithful. It is notable. You know, don't try too hard to keep your godliness a secret. Now listen, we, there is warning about those who would mangle their hair so that when they went out, that people say, what's going on? I'm fasting. Well, come on. Uh, no, still do that, you know, because you've already got... There's a difference between seeking a reward from men and just living a godly life in Christ Jesus that God's people take note of. He was well spoken of by the brothers. Uh, Proverbs 22 reminds us that a good name is to be chosen rather than riches and favor but more than gold and silver. Secondly, I want to draw your attention to what it says in verse 3 of Acts 16. Uh, here, he had a respectable reputation. He was also a suffering servant. Be willing to face hardship if necessary. Now, you're going to say, what is the suffering? Well, I'll read it to you, and I'll let you think briefly about it. It says this in verse 3. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and because he was part Jew, and the ministry was often also among the Jews, and for one not one to be Jewish, in a sense, and not circumcised was an impediment to the freedom of communication. What does it say? Verse 3, he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. Now, remember, he's just come back in Acts chapter 15 from the fact that circumcision is not necessary. So it could be reasonably argued by Timothy, you just brought to us the, the, the letter from Jerusalem that says it's not necessary. Oh, it's not necessary for your standing before God, but I want you to come with me and have an effective ministry among the fellow brothers and sisters uh, of Jewish origin, and it's going to be harder if you're not circumcised. And so do it. Now, there's not a lot of description there, and I don't want to read too much into it, but it's, when, it, how, when it's a simple phrasing, and he took him and circumcised him, it, there's no indication that there was him and hawing and hesitation and a, oh no, and, and what's the experience level of this, this circumciser? And, uh, but just it, ready to suffer hurt. Valuing, valuing opportunity to serve God over bodily ease, bodily, bodily comfort, and not knowing much of it, we do know from the days that we go back and, and the mistreatment of Dinah in the Old Testament, the rising up of, of, of Levi and Judah and, and killing a whole uh, tribe of people, that they were, all the men were laid up 
following that and were easily killed by just two guys because of the effect of that, of that circumstance. And so, a suffering servant to an extent. Second, thirdly, we see that he had a holy heart. Again, that is the work of God. That is the work of grace. And I, for that, I draw your attention uh, just by perusing a few uh, other places. In 2 Timothy 1, verse 5 and 6, it says this. I am reminded of your, the ESV says, sincere faith. Uh, other translations will say genuine faith. The, the, a more literal rendering that's a little bit less comfortably spoken is an un hypocritical faith. And so now you, you, you get the sense of it, isn't it? He's not just a bunch of bluster. He's not just a guy who talks. He's got all the right words and right, the right understanding. But what he says, he means. And you know he means it because you see it. You see it in his life. You see it in his actions. You see it in his heart. It is a genuine, uh, uh, the way that it's, it's stated here um, in Philippians 2.20, but Timothy's proven worth you know. The genuine heart. Fourthly, we, I, I want you to see this. You can see he's also called to be an extensive example. When Paul writes to him in 1 Timothy, he says this, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. So again, Paul is now telling Timothy to set the believers an example as one who is in leadership. And, and I say an extensive example because he says this, in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And you're saying, all right, what's the difference between purity and conduct? What's the difference between... Why, the whole point of, the, of this list isn't designed for dissection. It's, it's to understand inclusion in all of these things. This isn't the kind of list where you, you, you tick two out of three and, you're, and you're, you're in the good category. You're wanting the full array of your life ought to be exemplary. And, and verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture to exhortation and teaching. Yeah. So we see here, not only what is the example to be as an individual leader, but in terms of what is the example as the priority and practices of the church through those leaders. And then lastly, uh, in terms of the example uh, here, we would say that he's others-oriented. In Philippians 2, verse 19 and through 21, listen to what it says. Paul writes to the church at Philippi and says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Listen to verse 20. It's powerful. Regarding Timothy, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That's rich, isn't it? I have no one like him. And you think, well, Paul, you have all of these other people at various times. But, but Timothy is such a God-honoring individual by the grace of God living up to his name. So others-oriented, a genuine concern for others. And listen to what he says in verse 21. He says, for all they all seek 
their own interests, but he, those of Christ's. Oh, that is God honoring. He's, his priority concern, Christ. And in the expression of that, a genuine concern for those who belong to Christ. And, and you know, and, and lastly, I would say, you know, we see unfolded here, what, what, a, what a life-affecting earnestness that just pours out of all of this. He, um, he has a commitment to the interests of Christ, and I guess in a certain sense we would say this. In 2 Corinthians, it says this in uh, verse 9. So whether at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. So simple points today, a life-endangering endeavor that we see in Paul. And that endeavor is for Christ and for those who belong to Christ. For Christ because I belong to Him, and for Christ's because they also belong to Him. A life, we see a life-engaging example uh, in Christ and Paul and leaders, but primarily in Timothy. In Timothy, we see in the mercies of God's working in his life, because of the power of Christ in him, he was... A suffering servant. He uh, showed showed himself to have a holy heart. Uh, if I had more time to unpack it, he he showed himself to be a trusted teacher. He showed himself to be an extensive example. So much is there, and so I urge you and me, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus, that we would recognize this: Timothy is characterized by honoring God. There is no greater purpose in our lives. We exist for the praise of His glory, for His kingdom and for His name. May God work these same things in our own hearts. Let's pray. God, we, uh, we are a blessed people. We are so thankful for Christ. We know that it is because of Him and His work that we have acceptance, that we have salvation, that we're delivered, that we are uh, a new creation in Christ Jesus. And because of that, we are able, in part and in progress, to follow His example. And that You have, by Your power, worked Christ-likeness to some measure in many faithful men who have gone gone before us and who are even present in our days. Lord, we pray that you would grant us uh, encouragement, that we would uh, take note of those that your power is working on, and we would see those things and we would give you praise and glory and that we would strive to imitate those examples. God, we pray that you would stir up within us just a heart, an earnestness, an unshakable passion to honor you, and that we would uh, consider you more important than anything else that we have, houses, land, or even life itself. Jesus is our all in all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.